Good morning. My name is Sarah, and the Old Testament reading is found in Isaiah 52, 13 through 15. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Maddie Albert. The New Testament reading is found in Philippians 2, 4 through 11. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The word of the Lord. Good morning, my name is Bill. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in Mark 10, 42 to 45. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to our Lord Christ. Remain standing as we pray. Jesus, we ask that you would give us eyes eyes by your spirit that we would be able to see you more clearly today. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come and let your word speak to us, take root in us, cause us to become more like Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. And everybody said, amen. You may be seated. What makes a person great? What is it that makes an individual great? If we think about some of the ways we've answered this question throughout human history, we would say maybe it's a great conquest. After all, Alexander the Great was called such because of how he extended the dominion or the influence, the empire of the Greeks. And so greatness has maybe something to do with conquest. You'll say, well, no, maybe not just conquest. Maybe it's about knowledge. And so um, Aristotle or Plato is a great philosopher because of their understanding of the mysteries of life. Or you might say so-and-so is a great scholar or a great scientist or a great, you know, a person who who made a contribution uh, to the world in some way. Uh, there, There may be another 
sense that you say, well, I know what it is. Someone is great based on how much they're over, how much land is under them. Caesar Augustus, he called himself Augustus, the great one, the magnificent Caesar, because he had this massive, sprawling empire. And so there's a sense in which greatness maybe has to do with conquest or knowledge or authority. But if we were to boil it down, we'd say, oh, all that is, is achievement. That one way of answering the question of what makes a person great is achievement. What is it they have achieved? Now, in our day and in our generation, we sort of have this, maybe you'd call it a postmodern critique of that. And you'd say, that's so dumb. That's so lame. I'm not going to be chasing the rat race, trying to climb the corporate ladder of achievement and accumulation. I mean, that's just hollow and false, right? And so we have our own version of answering the question of what makes a person great. And our version of answering it is, I'll tell you what makes a person great. It's when they are fully themselves. And so greatness, we sort of burned out on greatness is achievement because we thought, oh, that's empty. I mean, look at all these guys who, and, and, and men and women who gave their lives to climbing the ladder of their careers. And all for what? Who cares? I'll tell you what greatness is. Greatness is self-discovery and self-expression. Now, in a sense, this, this kind of current day critique of the definition of greatness as achievement is a good, it's a good critique. It rightly says, hey, greatness as achievement won't get you all that you want, so how great can it really be? And so, and there's something true about saying, you know what, we are unique, we have these different things, and so greatness is about being fully you. In fact, a Christian might even agree with part of that and say, yes, if you are made by God, then he has uniquely gifted you. Paul wrote to the Ephesians and he said, you are God's workmanship. The Greek there, poema, you are God's masterpiece created for good works. So there's something true about not defining greatness simply as achievement, but as a little bit of self-discovery and self-expression. But I wonder if we keep pressing into this contemporary definition of greatness as self-discovery and self-expression, if we would find out that it too is hollow. It too can't give us the thing that we really long for. There is a, a great sort of iconic story that in our day has captured the imagination of millions of people worldwide. And it is this epic story that really critiques that definition of greatness as being about self-expression. Do you know what I'm talking about? That movie Frozen. Because Elsa is all about removing the inhibitions. I mean, listen to the epic poem, a.k.a. song, in the movie. Don't let them in, don't let them see, be the good girl you always have to be. Conceal, don't feel. Don't let them know, well now they know. Let it go. (laughs) The second verse is even better. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Let it go. It's actually quite good because it says to us, wait a minute, what happened when Elsa, I mean, that's not the end of the movie, right? I mean, we're all maybe sick of that movie, at least if you have kids, you are. Um, 
But you know that as she begins to remove inhibitions and self-expression, that all of a sudden she discovers there's a part of who she is that's actually quite terrifying and destructive. If we define greatness as achievement, we'll say, well, you know, that doesn't quite give it. If we define greatness as self-expression, we'd say, okay, but there's a problem because what happens when I'm expressing myself and I discover that there's something actually quite destructive and terrifying in me? How do I know which parts of me to express and which parts of me to suppress? How do I know? How, how do I decide this? And so what we think the Christian answer to this dilemma is, oh, I know, I know what you're going to say, Mr. Preacher Man, that the answer, the Christian answer is don't want to be great. Don't desire great. You bad person for desiring to be great, you know. You, you, you just, you, you wicked individual. How dare you desire greatness? Just sit back down, would you? And that the message of Christianity to the world is to cut down any blade of grass that tries to stand tall, just to keep us all down. You just don't, 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 you selfish, wicked person. Get back down. But that's actually not the way Jesus handles this question. We've been in the series here through the Gospel of Mark, and one of the questions we've been wrestling with, if not the main question we've been wrestling with, is who is Jesus? And we've, we've talked about along the way that when we see more clearly who Jesus is, we begin to understand more clearly who we are. And then if we get the question of who Jesus is, if we get that question right, we begin to see everything in, in, in life differently. And so there's this episode here, things are kind of building up as Jesus is about to go to the cross, and there's three times in the span of two chapters that Jesus talks about his coming, suffering, death, and resurrection. Scholars call this the passion predictions. Um, passion as in the old sense of the word, suffering, not romance or feeling, okay? Passion predictions. The first one we read was last week when Jesus says it. Look, the Son of Man is going to suffer many things and then die and then he'll be raised up. And Peter rebukes him, right? Peter says, no, no, Jesus, what? The next two passion predictions come in, the, in our text for today. Mark 9, verse 30. If you've got a Bible or a device, just kind of scroll there. Mark 9, verse 30. And they went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them. So what were you discussing along the way? Okay, now catch this scene, okay? Sometimes, depending on when the version of your Bible, there might be a little insert header or whatever. Those headers weren't in there, right? So this, this is all one scene. They're walking along the way, and Jesus is saying, you know, we're on our way to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. And they're kind of like, eh, yeah, whatever. And they start talking amongst themselves. And they get there, and Jesus says, so, so what were you guys talking about? Because you weren't listening to what I was talking about. What were you talking about? But they kept silent on the way, for they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. They're like, we don't want to tell you, Jesus, what we're talking about. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but the one who sent me. Now, there are other 
places in the gospel where Jesus compares the disciple to a child. But in this text, the parallel is not that a disciple is like a child. In this text, it is the disciple is like the one who welcomes a child. And so it begs the question, what, what, was a, what did a child sort of represent? What was a child's place in the first century? Well, not a very good place. Children were viewed as a nuisance, as to be kept out of the way. In fact, by, by most uh, gauges, children were viewed as not fully developed humans, not fully arrived humans, and therefore second rate. Second rate to the empire, second rate to social life, and so therefore unimportant. Which, by the way, as an aside, I think... It's significant that from the beginning, the early Christians valued babies and children. From the beginning, you, you have stories in the early centuries of Christians finding the babies who had been discarded by pagans in the empire and rescuing them and raising them. This is the, this is the reason why when we talk about valuing life, it's not because we have a political persuasion, it's because we have a theological conviction that life, even when it's unseen and invisible in the womb, matters to God. And we'll welcome the least and the lowest and the last, even when society says they don't matter. It's also the reason, by the way, that I think the church should be, go out of its way to recognize and affirm and value people who give their lives to the care of children. And yes, that means teachers, but I mean, I mean even specifically parents who stay home. There is sometimes in our society the way of saying, well, that does, that's not significant. That doesn't matter. What greatness are you achieving there? And Jesus is saying, look, the one who welcomes a child. And so for, for mothers or fathers who stay at home and, and do this, it's important for you to know that the church sees you, that the church values you, that this is in the long line of people, um, of, of followers of Jesus making sense of his words. But this story continues. Mark 10, if we jump ahead now, Mark 10, verse 32. This is another passion prediction, the third one, and again the disciples are arguing about greatness. Verse 32, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid, and, and taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to them, saying, see we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. I mean, when you set these scenes, they, these are stories that are right, they're happening in the same moment. It just seems all the more absurd, doesn't it? Jesus is like, guys, we're almost there. Do you see it? There's Jerusalem. I'm gonna... And he gets more detailed. This is his most detailed of the three passion predictions. He says, they're going to spit. They're going to mock. They're gonna... And they're like, yeah, 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 yeah. Hey, we're going to ask you something. Will you do whatever we ask? And Jesus is like, ah, oh, myself, you know. <laughs> Why are you doing this? And he said to them, okay, what do you want me to do for you? Now stop here for a moment. This is significant. Every time God asks a question in the scriptures, it's not because he's lacking information. It's because he, he knows we are lacking in attentiveness. When God asks Adam in the garden, Adam, where are you? It's not so he can know. It's, Adam, do you realize where you are? 
And so when Jesus says, well, what is it? What do you want me to do? He's saying, okay, this is your moment. You've got an audience with the Son of God, with the Messiah. What are you going to ask for? What's the thing deep inside that drives you? What are you going to ask for? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in glory. And Jesus said to them, you don't know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, yes, we are able. And Jesus said to them, okay, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. He's saying, look, just by being connected to me, the suffering that I am about to undergo, you will share in. There will be part, you, you will have a part in it. Not in the atoning sense, but in the, the, the persecution sense. You, will, you too will experience persecution and suffering. And he says, but to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. This is the very first incident of office politics in the church. <laughs> the very first one, they said, what are those guys doing? We saw him pull the boss aside. I bet he's jockeying for a raise. <laughs> and Jesus called to them and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones, circle that word great again, their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great, circle that word great again, among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Jesus, Jesus doesn't rebuke their desire for greatness. Instead, he redefines what greatness is. This is the central thing that we're going to say this morning. We're going to ask a few questions around this statement, but this is the core of it. Jesus doesn't rebuke our desire for greatness. Instead, he redefines greatness. Jesus doesn't say, hey, wait a minute, what do you mean you want to be great? Listen, you guys, stop it. Sit back down. How dare you? He says, okay, great, great, great. Listen, there's two pictures of greatness. The great ones of the Gentiles lord it over others, but greatness in the kingdom is to be the slave of all. He redefines it along the way. He says, look, this is, this is different. Do you know, you can have a right desire, but if your desire is aimed at the wrong destination, your sense of direction will be off too. Let me give you an illustration of this. Let's say I have a desire for a beach vacation, and I do. And let's say that my desire is great, which it is. But in my mind, the destination for a beach vacation is north. And so you see me on I-25, northbound, with my board shorts, which are pretty cool, and a swim shirt, because that's how I roll, and the kids, and beach towels, and noodles, and sand buckets, and suntan lotion, and, we're, and you're like, Glenn, Hong Kong, where are you going, man? I'm like, dude, I'm going to the beach. And they're like, right, um, you're going north. Like, I know, my desire for the beach is so strong. Like, well, your desire is strong, but you got the wrong destination. And if you got the wrong destination, your direction is going to be totally wrong, too. 
Jesus says, look, you desire to be great, but you're going the wrong way. It's sort of like saying, Glenn, I know you desire the beach, but do you know if you go north, A, it's going to take you a really long time to find a beach, and B, when you find one, it's going to be very cold. It's not going to happen. And so by redefining greatness, he actually refines us. By redefining our desire for greatness, he actually refines the desire itself. By redefining greatness, he actually refines our desire itself. How does Jesus define greatness? There's a couple of words that show up in both of these texts. One word is servant. And that Greek word for servant there means the one who waits at tables. And we kind of use that word even in our society today. I'm a server at Applebee's or whatever. Someone who, who waits for another's orders or commands. That's great. But then Jesus uses a second word that's actually lower than that. He uses the word for slave, for a bond slave, for a person whose very life and identity belongs to another. He says, look, if you want to be great, you got to be the servant. And he who desires to be first needs to become the slave of all. And you're like, oh, you had to go there. Because isn't it enough to say I'm waiting on the orders of another? Now you're saying I have to belong to someone else. I've got to go all, I've got to be- become the slave. Jesus defines this even in his own life. He says, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve. And then in case we're wondering what that's going to look like, he says to serve and to give his life away. How does Jesus define greatness? Jesus says that greatness is not in self-expression, but in self-giving. Not in self-expression, but in self-giving. There is an outward movement, but the outward movement is to be giving of yourself. Now, if you think about this, if Jesus, by redefining greatness, actually refines our desire for it, how does this actually confront us? How does this actually challenge the narratives that we encounter every day in our society? Well, our world says, we say, I've got to be myself. And Jesus says, you've actually got to be a servant. Isn't it interesting, interesting that Jesus' answer is not, if you want to be great, do some serving things. Sign up to serve. See, even though we are inviting people to serve at church today, the real call is for every one of us to actually become something different. To be a servant, to actually become something different. We say, our culture says, I've got to do what's best for me. Jesus says, no, you've got to give your life away to serve the lowest, the last, the least. That's the picture here. But understand that what Jesus is doing by saying, when you become a servant, you end up giving your life away. The being changes so that the doing is different. The being changes so that the doing is different. You know what that means? That means two people could actually be doing the same thing, but be very different. You can do the same task, one out of the, 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 the identity and essence of a servant, and the other out of a desire to impress or out of being selfish. You can actually do the same thing. Imagine two entrepreneurs, two business owners running their enterprise. They might be doing the same thing. They might be both equally as savvy in, in how to make profits and how to network and how to promote. And they, might be, they might be doing the same things. 
But the one is in themselves a person who's only driven for themselves. And the other is saying, no, it's because I want to employ other people that I, am, that I want to grow the business. My very being is a servant. And so I'm looking for other people's good. That's why we're going to provide a goods a, a service or, or goods. That's why we're going to help employ others. You can do the same thing and be a, a different person. But it works the flip side, too. You could actually have two people serving in the church nursery, and one is truly has become or is becoming a servant, and the other is trying to win God's favor. The other is trying to perform a religious duty. Well, the church said I need to serve. I'm going to serve. You could do the same thing, but actually be a different person. Jesus wants to get to the root of who we are so that our, all of our action becomes different. Well, you may be listening to this and you're saying, well, that's, that's great how Jesus said that, but objection, why does Jesus get to define what greatness is? Who says Jesus is right? I mean, actually, if you look at all the great teachers before Jesus, this statement Defining greatness as the servant who gives his life away, that is radical. And it's remarkably different. Aristotle didn't say that. Plato didn't say that. There were not other teachers who talked this way. So your question might be, Jesus, excuse me, if you're going to be so radical about redefining greatness and you're going to be so bold as to refine my desire for it, my question to you, Jesus, is why do you get to do that? Who made you? God. How come you get to say? The answer comes in verse 45 of Mark 10. Jesus says, Look, it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great must become your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For the way that Greek preposition works, for everything else hinges on this. This is the premise. For because the Son of Man, even the Son of Man, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life away as a ransom for many. Why does Jesus get to redefine greatness this way? Why is it Jesus is right in this radical statement? Because Jesus is the suffering servant whom God exalted. Because Jesus actually is the suffering servant whom God exalted. Now, stay with me for just a moment. We heard in our New Testament reading, Philippians 2, and it, it, Paul is quoting this hymn that was sung about Jesus. And when you listen to this, I want you to catch this. Christians do not believe that there existed some sort of job description hierarchy in heaven, and Jesus looked at the list of jobs and said, okay, which is the one that's very tops? Oh, servant. Well, not what I would have guessed, but okay, I'll sign, sign me up. Servanthood was not this abstract, great thing that Jesus then chose. It's the other way around. The second person of the Trinity emptied himself and took on the very essence of a servant, obedient even to the point of death. And so God exalted him. And now it's enshrined evermore in heaven that the one who is the servant is the greatest of all. Why? Because that's what Jesus is. See, it's important that we don't see this the other way around. Serving is not abstractly a good thing. 
That's why no other philosopher named it as a good. Who, who would name it as a good? That doesn't seem good. It's good because it's what Jesus became and is. Philippians 2, have this mind among you which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the very form of a servant, the very essence of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, fully human. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, and therefore... Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's because Jesus became the servant that servanthood is the highest form in the kingdom. Does that make sense? He, everything Jesus assumes and takes on, he elevates. It's the same about our humanness, and it's the same about this position, this essence of being a servant. You're saying, okay, all right, but I've just got one final problem. How could we possibly be what he is? How could we possibly be what he is? You're saying, okay, I'm, I'm tracking with you. Jesus doesn't rebuke our desire for greatness. He redefines it. This is how he defines it, as being the servant. And he gets to d- define it because that's his very life. But I'm stuck right here, Glenn, is, is, is how do I become what he is? This is where all other views of who Jesus is begin to fall apart. Because if Jesus was a great teacher, even a radical teacher, We'd say, thank you, Jesus, for telling me what greatness really looks, is. And if Jesus was more than a good teacher, let's say he was the best example of a servant. Let's say he was the, the, the Time Magazine years ago said, Jesus is the most persistent picture of a self-giving individual. Like, cool. So good teacher and great example. Awesome. I'm still stuck. Because guess what? I'm still me. So if Jesus is this great teacher with a compelling teaching about being self-giving and sacrificial, and if Jesus was the most compelling model of sacrificial love, we'd say, wow, that's so beautiful. I love the teaching and I love the example. Problem, I'm still me. And I'm selfish. And at the core, I don't want to fully be like that. Remember the question we began with. How do we screen out the things that are terrifying and destructive, and how do we let through the things that aren't? How how, how do we become just masters of ourselves? How do we become what He is? This is where we are kind of like James and John. We're kind of saying to Jesus, hey, we got a question for you. And Jesus says, okay, kind of the right question, but totally the wrong question. Um, answer here. And if we were to be more like James and John, we'd say, okay, great, got it, got it. Okay, so greatness is serving. Great. I'm going to be the best servant ever. And to us, Jesus will say what he said to James and John. Are you able to drink this cup? Are you able? Can you drink this cup? See, cup 
is a metaphor in the Bible. All through the Old Testament, the cup is a metaphor of God's judgment, of God's justice. And in fact, the prophets who were spokespeople of justice would say God's cup is now full and he's going to pour it out on the nations. The cup is a picture of God's judgment which flows out of God's justice. We love justice, right, in our day. And Jesus says to James and John, can you drink the cup of God's judgment? Because if you're going to go around pointing the finger at everybody else's injustice that deserves our judgment, guess what? It won't be long before you start pointing it back at you. So Jesus says, I just want to know, do you really think you can drink that cup? If you want God to judge all, the, all that's unjust in the world, great, he'll do it. Can you drink it? Can you take it? Can you take the cup? And the answer is no. None of us can drink the cup of God's just judgment. None of us can, can take it down. But see, Jesus, Jesus in the garden, he's fully aware of what he's about to do before Calvary. And so the Gospels tell us that Jesus in the garden, sweating with great agony, drops of blood from his forehead, holding this before the Father and saying, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He became a slave all the way down to the bottom, willing to drink the cup. How can we become what he is? Because he became what we are. Because he became what we are. There's no other way. And see, church, if you don't get this, then servanthood will become a strategy to win God's favor. Servanthood will become another strategy to sort of make God pleased with you. God, look, I signed up for nursery and welcome team and ushers, and I'm just so, please love me, please love me. And the Father's like, I already did. I already do. Do you see the cross? Jesus is saying, don't use servanthood as a strategy to drink the cup of God's judgment and make him happy with you now. How many Christians in how many churches all around the world hear a message about being a servant and they think, yes, I'm so guilty. I've had all these past sins, so now I need to atone for my past sins by balancing the scales and doing a bunch of good things. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not balance out the scales with good works. The Gospels is because Jesus became what you are and drank the cup of God's judgment all the way down to the bitter end, we can become what he is. And now what the psalmist says is true of us. You anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. We get not the cup of judgment, we get the cup of blessing. How can we become what he is? Because Jesus became what we are. Everything about this life of following Jesus hinges on the grace of God working in us. A grace that is poured out to you because of the cross. So the idea is not to sit in church and say, Jesus, thank you for that teaching about servanthood. And Jesus, thank you for that example about servanthood. But to say, Jesus, thank you for standing in my place for my sin, doing for me what I could never have done for myself. Now, Jesus, by your Spirit, keep changing me so that I will become like 
you are. Amen?